0: Hello everybody! Lum Ramiyasha, your host Among Americans here, to welcome you to the start, the birth of a new podcast. The internet's first dedicated, devoted Yorosiastra podcast, hashtag Squad, of which I am a member. And joining me is AC, who you might know as AtProdTelly on Twitter, who is the runner of the Daily Lum and the Hashtag Lum Squad that this podcast is named after. This podcast has been a long time coming because, as you know, folks, I am a huge fan of your Sigatra. It is my favorite anime and manga of all time so naturally when Viz Media announced that they'd be bringing the manga back to the states in their brand new omnibus releases that are just so beautiful and wonderful I knew that I had to celebrate the Haitian by talking about your Yoroseasara, spreading the word, promoting it and making sure that Everyone in the community is connected together, and we bring more people in to support this release than just talk about this classic series that we all love. Our love of Lum spans the world, and we're going to bring all you fans together. All of you are going to join the hashtag LumSquad. So what we've got here is the first episode of our podcast where AC and I discuss our history with the series, the history of the series. We discuss the first volume of this new Omnibus release, what we like about it, what differences there are between this version and their original version from the 90s, and we answer up with some Q&As on Twitter, of which that brings us to another point about why this is dropping in the Manga Mavericks feed. As you may remember, we set out a call for questions for a URSA podcast we were going to do on Manga Mavericks, and we answered those questions on this podcast, the first episode of Hashtag Whom Squad. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't going to also do a Manga Mavericks podcast on URSA itself. There will be a dedicated Manga Mavericks episode on URSA, because... We couldn't get Colton on for this recording, which is why this is the pilot for Lum Squad. But we will discuss the series on Manga Mavericks. Colton and I had another special guest that was in the works that will be happening sometime in early summer. But for now, you're going to get some Lum goodness, some Yurziata goodness in the first episode of Hashtag lum Squad, our new monthly podcast. That AC and I are doing and I hope you'll join the ride, join the squad and listen on. So my darlings, let's get right onto it and enjoy the show. Things. Let's put weird and weird together because space is weird and we're here to talk about it. I'm Lum Ramiyasha. And I'm AC. And we're the Lum Squad, here to talk about anything and everything related to the wonderfully wacky world of Rumiko Takahashi's Uruzi Yatsura. And welcome to our pilot episode, where we're going to give you the lowdown on what this podcast is all about, what your Yatsura is, our histories with the series, and... And what we plan to do here going forward. How's that sound,
1: AC? That sounds perfect. And I think, uh, I think we should probably start with how, what our relationship with the series is and how we got into it.
0: That's right. And so I'll start off first as someone who I think is more relatively recent to Eurisyatra, at least in comparison to, I think, your story with it, Andrew, because I'm, uh, in my early twenties. I was not really around for Yurisayatsu's heyday when it was brought over in the early 90s. I discovered the series during my high school years, which were in the early 2010s. And the story of that, where that is, is that I got into Ronma Half after discovering it just online in a, the, my junior year of high school. I was watching this on an online streaming site, I got really into Ranma. And from after getting really into Ranma, I decided to get into Inuyasha after realizing that Ranma and Inuyasha were by the same person, Rumiko Takahashi. I read and watched all of Inuyasha, and I was like, man, I really love the works of Rumiko Takahashi. And then one day, randomly, I discovered an opening of an old anime on YouTube called Yuris I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was about. Who made it? I just saw this old anime opening, and it looked super cute. And then I looked it up, and wouldn't you know it? Yurusei was the first manga created by my new favorite mangaka, Rumiko Takahashi. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read slash watch this. And so I looked up where I could read slash watch it, which was nowhere because the series was not legally available at any point at that point in time, uh, because it had gone out of print, uh, for a long time. But I decided to jump in on the manga because during my high senior year at high school, I was a little worried that I wouldn't have time to watch 195 episodes of the anime, but I thought I could squeeze in the manga when I had time, because that sounded like less of a time commitment to me, because I, I generally, I just feel like I read faster than the pace of anime allows me to watch.
1: Yeah, that's very true.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, I started Ursa Yatsura in the beginning of my last semester of my high school year, early 2013, and I have the sting memories of reading it during breaks in school. Like, I would during slow periods, during my biology class, I would just head on up and read Eurasiaatra chapters. And after school, I would read a few Eurasiaatra chapters while I was waiting to be picked up. And I would read it at home every now and again. And through the course of that semester, I read the entirety of Eurasiaatra. And by the end of it, I fell in love. From there on, I watched the anime, which I completed in about two years. Wow. And I saw the movies as well. And throughout all that experience, after trying to learn as much as I can about it, by uh, devouring all the interviews I could find with Takahashi about the series, any information at all, I became a huge fan of the series, and it became my favorite anime and manga series of all time. In fact, my favorite series piece of fiction of all time, I would say. Oh, wow.
1: That's Really that's high big. up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've, I've also heard a couple of people say that about Ranma, is that they get into Ranma, and it's kind of like the gateway drug to the rest of uh, Takahashi's work. So people will go okay. and run more, and go. Oh, there's this other one that looks kind of similar, similar art style and storytelling, and that's Inuyasha or or LUM or Rinne or something like that. So it's it's kind of interesting to see so many people have gotten into it that way as well. And I'm I'm very happy to hear that you've watched all 195 episodes of the anime
0: and the 13 OVAs and the 13 OVAs, OVAs, yeah.
1: And, uh, I have not done that yet, actually. Uh, it's been really? interesting for me because I have always been more of a fan of the manga rather than the anime. I love the anime. Mm-hmm. I love it to pieces. But I think, um, it was the, the manga that first drew me in. So I've read through the manga several times now, actually. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll tell you how I got, uh, started into Urusei Atsura. It was about, uh, 1995. Uh, I'm old, by the way, (laughs) Uh, and I was uh, just kind of learning what anime was because in Australia, we always get things uh, kind of, or at least back then, we got uh, like kind of pop culture things after everyone else because Australia just didn't really have the internet until kind of the mid to late 90s. And, you know, we would always be a couple of seasons of The Simpsons behind or something like that. We wouldn't get, like, major motion blockbuster pitches for, like, a couple of months after. So we were a bit slow in the uptake of anime. Um, but a friend of mine uh, who was living in Brisbane at the time uh, showed me this magazine uh, called An America, And I was kind of figuring out what anime was and I'd seen a movie called Appleseed, and he lent me this issue of An America. I read it cover to cover many, many times, and they had two manga in there, that, just one chapter from one story and another from a from a different story. One of them was uh, Galaxy Express 999, which is another very um, culturally significant uh, manga in Japan. A classic. Very much so. And uh, the other one was Urusei Atsura, and it was actually the issue where Lum goes missing, and Ataru oh just doesn't know what to do. Like... It was oh, that's such so a iconic. powerful one. It is. And the anime uh, episode of that was actually voted in Japan as the best episode of the anime, interestingly enough, as well.
0: Yeah. That is definitely, I think, the most iconic story in the Yoroseatsu series for uh, definitely Japanese audiences. But I think, like, generally people can agree that that is, like, up there as, like, one of the best stories.
1: It is. It tells you everything you need to know about the characters, I think. So you know as a as a 14 you know year old boy and seeing this uh alien uh bikini clad princess i have you know I was kind of already on board but what really stood out to me was the characters and the comedy and the drama that was in there and you know, you, you there's you know, anime sexy girls dime a dozen and everything, but that really stuck with me, that story. So I collected more issues of An America to read just to read Irisa Yatsura, and then I found out that there was, you know, individual issues uh that was I think interestingly enough, rather than being stapled, those issues were actually bound like a book, like with glue and everything like that, and they had like little yeah. little little spines on them where you could actually see the title, which I thought was really unique as well. So after I got into Urasayatsura and started reading it, I got into more anime, and then I got into Ranma Half, and I got into the rest of, um, Takahashi's works. And then I just became more interested in Japan in general, so much so that I ended up moving to Japan in 2003, uh, for seven years as an English. That's awesome. Yeah. And it all kind of started with, um, with Urasayatsura. It's had a huge influence on your life. Absolutely. Unmistakably. Uh, it has just been so precious to me in a way because it just started something and now i'm married to a um a japanese woman called maria and we've had a daughter called may and it all kind of started there just uh just like this nice little story that i read back in 1995 so i wasn't always like even when i was in japan like i was kind of looking for urusei stuff but i wasn't like a, a huge kind of mega fan at that time i just kind of really liked it it wasn't until after i moved back to australia in 2010 and sort of kind of consolidated my collection and my uh my, i have a lot of animation cells from the ursa Atsara production and that i kind of you know, i really really like this and that's when i got back into the anime and read the manga once more and then was on twitter and it kind of built up from there
0: yeah and you started the lum squad hashtag and the daily Lum.
1: Now, that's an interesting story because I, as much as I would love to take credit, I didn't start the Daily Lum. I, really? Yeah. I was uh, just friends with a um, a girl called Erica, uh, and she used to do it. She created it. And then I started posting things and saying, oh, look, at this. this is my collection. And she said, you know what? You know so much more, and you have so much more to say about this than me. So she actually passed the Daily Lum to me. And she since has left Twitter for a better life. I think she was spending too much time on social media. Um, so I'm very grateful to her as well. Um, but the whole Lum Squad thing, that was definitely, that was definitely started by me.
0: That's awesome. And you've formed such an awesome community of fellow Eurocyatzer fans through the Lum Squad hashtag.
1: Yeah. And it's been interesting because we're all over the world. We're all of different. Different, uh, races, different ages, different genders. And it's just fantastic to see all of these people come together with a common interest. And, you know, we do, um, occasionally I'll put on a, um, an episode viewing party where like on a late on a Saturday night, which I think is early Friday morning. Oh, no, I've got that backwards. <laughs> early Saturday morning. <laughs> Time zones really confuse me.
0: Uh, and I'll, I'll go I to a, I think you're about 14 hours ahead of me.
1: I think so. Yeah. And I'll just put on episodes of Urusei Yatsura, and there's a chat room there. It's on uh, Rab.it. And then we just all chat and watch the episodes and comment. And it's just, it's got a real community feel, which I love.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I think it's so awesome that around the world, people can be united by their love
1: of love. Yeah, exactly. And I think, maybe I think now we should go into the beginnings of Urusei Yatsura.
0: That's right. And so I guess we should start off by explaining the premise of Urusei Yatsura. Your is the story of Ataru Muraboshi, the most lecherous and unlucky boy on Earth, who is roped by random chance into playing a game of tag with an electric, flyingly attractive alien oni gal named Lum to save the Earth from being invaded by her father. Through a series of mishaps and misunderstandings, Ataru manages to win the game, only to have accidentally proposed to Lum, who moves to Earth to live with him. The series follows this odd couple's 366 chapters and 34 volumes. worth of supernatural and sci-fi slapstick shenanigans as Lom brings out the weirdest in the town of Tomobikicho and brings a bevy of aliens, yokai and other strange folk into Ataru's life. And the series asks this question, will this star-crossed duo find love or will Ataru's
1: silly perversity keep them apart? And that's such an accurate uh, description of basically what happens during the entire series. And there's there's no doubt that Ataru does love Lum. He just loves all mm-hmm. the other girls as well. <laughs> he doesn't want to yes. be he just doesn't want to be tied down. And he just he has bad luck and that's part of the joke as well.
0: Yes, his name means born under an unlucky star.
1: Yeah, the literal I suppose translation of his name, Moroboshi and Ataru, Ataru kind of means hit. So mm. kind of uh and Moroboshi kind of means falling star. So hit by a falling star. Right, right. So it's a and it it is a real name. Like uh, Moroboshi is an actual surname that is used in Japan. Interestingly enough, so it's not completely mm-hmm. made up.
0: And Lum's name isn't made up either. No, it's, it's not. It's derived from the famous Hawaiian model uh, Agnes Lum.
1: Yeah, and she has actually cosplayed as Lum before. She she really took that as a bit of an honor uh, that the alien was named after her. I think. And she wasn't unaware of it for quite a while. Like, she just didn't know that this was going on until people started questioning her about it. And mm-hmm. I, I think she she really kind of owned that. And I think that's really nice. I'm glad she wasn't, like, annoyed or angry about it.
0: It's really cool that she embraced it, that uh, such a popular character was inspired by her.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's it's interesting because Ataru is the main protagonist of the series. Although everyone calls it Lum.
0: Yes. The original Wiz release is named after Lum. It's called Lum Yurisiatra. Yeah. They emphasize the Lum in the title, and she is definitely on most of the covers of the floppies. She's front and center of generally most media featuring Yurisiatra
1: because she's the breakout character. Yeah,
0: <laughs> she really is, which is really surprising because she was only supposed to be a one-off character for that first chapter of Yurisiatra. Kusiyatsu exactly. <laughs> was only intended to be a five-chapter miniseries at the start, and it was basically going to be Ataru encountering different crazy creatures in every chapter through this miniseries. But Lum proved so popular with readers that Takahashi brought her back in the third chapter, and that central relationship between her and Ataru became the focal point of the series throughout the entire run of it.
1: And it's interesting because his original girlfriend is Shinobu. And yes. it's the original premise behind it was uh, Ataru and Shinobu are trying to get together. And Lam is actually yes. kind of the bad guy and is a lot more evil in the first few chapters.
0: Yes, she literally does try to kill Shinobu at several points.
1: At several, several points.
0: <laughs> she is the antagonist for sure. And It's really interesting that now with so many years of hindsight, we see Ataru and Lama as the central couple, but it really was Ataru and Shinobu at the start of the series. And there's such a pivotal chapter in that early run where they go into the future and we see that Ataru has a child in the future and he married Shinobu. Yeah. And to me, that was such a, at the, when I first read it, I didn't pay much top, but in retrospect, that's actually pretty crazy that at the time, it was the accepted default that the central couple was Ataru and Shinobu. And it was like their story of having these trials and tribulations, dealing with this Lum interfering with their romance. And she was the obstacle in the story that they had to overcome to be together. And that changes throughout the course of the series that changes pretty quickly early on in the series. I think with the introduction of Mendow and, The key turning point is the chapter that we mentioned early on, the first chapter you read, Andrew, the story where Lum goes away when Ataru realizes he does have feelings for and cares about Lum. And that is the moment, I think, where the story shifts from being about Lum being the obstacle in Ataru's life to Lum and Ataru being that central relationship of the series.
1: Exactly. There is a, um, I do really appreciate the early uh, interactions between Ataru and Shinobu because by about the fifth or sixth chapter, you kind of see them kind of starting to drift apart a bit. And some of it's fault, Mm -hmm. but some of it's also just Ataru being, you know, being Ataru, just Mm -hmm. being lecherous. And, you know, he's got a wandering eye, I think, to put it nicely.
0: And that's really interesting to me, too, because Ataru's initial characterization is mostly just that he is unlucky. Otherwise, he is presented in those early chapters as a generally well-meaning dude. He does have, you know, some little bit of perviness in him, but not to the full-on extent that we'll see later on. In those early chapters, what's most emphasized is his unluckiness and the misfortune that the series is trying to present as unjust, that he does not deserve this misfortune. He's really getting a bad end of the deal in life because people are mistreating him he's being put into situations he has no control over and he just wants to have like a normal relationship with Shinobu. and i think that original five chapter story i think you can definitely see how that fifth chapter was supposed to be the end of like what that miniseries would be because that fifth chapter is all about like Ataru and Shinobu making like this big final like stand to repair their, their relationship in spite of Lums interference, like with their phone call, and then like one on the street to embrace each other, you know, and, and like in spite of Lums threats and stuff. And it's it's all supposed to be this big climactic finale that ultimately results in like the biggest misfortune yet, where like everyone has fu- truly turned on Ataru at this point. Even his parents have pretty much given up on him, <laughs> which is a whole arc in the beginning of. The first chapter to the end, to the end of the fifth chapter is to how Ataru's parents like start treating him colder and colder as those chapters progress. So you can definitely tell that like this was originally the intent, the direction of the story is like you know it was supposed to have this climax where you know Ataru and Shobu make one last ditch effort, Lum interferes, and Ataru's life is just made worse just in perpetuity but then as the series goes on you know there's just more layers added and ataru's perversity really starts getting expanded on a little bit more and more throughout those early chapters And i think it really reaches like a critical point in the oyuki chapter where he really goes over the line and sexually assaults oyuki which i think is more over the line than the ataru than what Ataru's baseline is in the rest of the series. But to me, that's the tipping point where Ataru, where the idea of Ataru's character goes from he's a well-meaning but misfortunate to he is a lecherous idiot who deserves what's coming to him.
1: And what we should talk about as well is that th- it is also a product of its time. So Urusei Ataru was released in 1978. So this is older than me. And it's interesting because Technically, Ataru would be a baby boomer. <laughs> he would have actually have been born in that time because he's 17 years old in yeah. 1978. So look, things back then would not work now, uh, especially uh, Ataru's attitude, uh, especially his physical attitude towards women. But once again, it's a product mm-hmm. of its time and you can't erase that and you can't change that. It should be noted though that when he does sort of force himself on, um, Oyuki, uh, she's kind of into it she's yes there's, there's a line when oh we only just got started like when she's into when they're interrupted and a monster chases after him so it's it's treated a- fairly lightheartedly but it is it is kind of it's a bit cringeworthy these days to say the least
0: yes it's definitely humor that has not aged well and it was also not truly acceptable for the time i know but at the same time, what works about it and what makes it less uh, offensive, in my opinion, is just the fact that Yoursiyaster takes place in this Looney Tunesy world where it's all about slapstick and shenanigans, and the status quo resets at the end in the next chapter. Even though a chapter might end with like, "Oh, there's multiple Atarus running around causing chaos."
1: I love that, uh, the, uh, that episode of the anime and the, and the manga as well, where Ataru is split into two, and there's mm-hmm. a, like a good version and a bad version, and then they kind of, through Lum's interference, they're trying to get them back together to become one person, but due to Lum's interference, they just become Two of the same Atarus. That's just the same normal Ataru. And it's not resolved. Like at the end, like they're just fighting each other in the street and the next episode is like they're back to normal. And it's like, did did one kill the other one and just bury him in the backyard? What, what happened there?
0: <laughs> and these are questions that Takashi is doesn't really want you to think about. It's no, just supposed exactly. to be these silly stories that are just supposed to be fun and goofy
1: yeah and that's the way they should be treated as well they shouldn't although we are going to do a bit of a deep dive and an an analysis on it you know we you don't need to think too seriously about what it is the one person we haven't really talked over yet who is in a lot of the early stories is uh basically their spiritual advisor i lose that term uh (laughs) very useless uh, very Very loosely loosely, which is sakurambo uh or cherry Mm -hmm. now sakurambo Does just literally mean cherry, uh, but I think the kanji for that can kind of mean demented monk if it's spelt in a certain way, uh, which is a bit of a stretch as well. And everyone calls him cherry, but he was a big player in the beginning of the, of the manga because he was kind of interfering. In a lot of Ataru's life, despite the fact he wanted nothing to do with him. And he would just keep turning up and, like, making things worse, obviously. And he does have some sort of spiritual powers as well, as demonstrated in the second episode, where there is no Lum whatsoever, the second chapter. Mm -hmm. Lum is gone, everything's reset, uh, Shinobu is there, and he, you know, accidentally uh, releases an imp into the household. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in, it's in that chapter as well, you kind of learn more about Ataru's parents, and you kind of see where Ataru gets it from, because uh, yes. his, his dad just kind of ignores everything that's going on and hides behind a newspaper. He's kind <laughs> of just angry at him all the time, with good reason most of the time, but she also seems to be a bit unlucky herself and towards the end of that first five chapters she's just literally saying i wish i had never had him
0: yeah i mean that starts off in the first chapter she just says it in passing mm. but with kind of like a bored expression on her face like she doesn't really mean it but by the end of that fifth chapter when she says it she's fuming she definitely means it that and so that's <laughs> like part of that arc with a parents in those first five chapters them going from they care about their son. They're a little frustrated, to, Oh, this kid of ours is causing us so many problems. I wish that he was not born. Like, that extreme change in how they feel about him. But you're definitely right in that Ataru really gets so much of his personality from his mother. And Ataru's mother is one of my favorite, really underrated characters in the series. Because she is definitely like an adult Ataru in the sense that she has she ha- has this irritable, like sneaky streak, but she also is kind of she definitely likes to hit on other people, even though she's in a committed <laughs> in, in a committed relationship.
1: And that seemed pretty early on when uh, Lum's fiance, Ray, who is a very handsome Oni from the same planet as Lum, comes to Earth and just kind of proposes to everyone because he can't speak Japanese, so he'll just say mm-hmm. one syllable words or you know, will you? Cook for me for the rest of my life and everyone takes that as a proposal. Uh, Ray's another interesting character as well, I think, because you can see why Lum left him because he's very yeah. boring. And that is the one thing that Ataru is not. Ataru is a lot of things, but he's not boring. He's, he has such an interesting oh, no. life. And I think that's one of the reasons that Lum stays with him because she just has so much fun hanging around Ataru and just watching his life unfold into these wacky events.
0: Most definitely. Ataru creates his own problems and situations of crazy shenanigans. And whereas Ray is pretty one note in the kind of chaos he can make. Ataru is chaotic. Yeah. Like he is unpredictable.
1: (laughs) And it's, it's great to see that Ray still kind of appears now and again. And Ray turns into a big dumb tiger cow sort of thing when he eats too much or he gets angry Mm -hmm. and he plays a bit of a a larger part in the early stories because he is Lum's ex-fiancé and like Ataru is like just trying to get Lum to leave and you know everything to go back to normal and of course that doesn't happen.
0: I think it's definitely purposeful that Ray was introduced in the sixth chapter, the first chapter after that original five-part mini-series that the series is intended to be, because he's a new character that provides a source of conflict for the Ataru, Lum, Shinobu, Love Triangle, and I can definitely see that Takahashi wanted to have a character like that in order to, you know, create new scenarios for conflicts involving these characters.
1: Do you have a, a favorite chapter from the uh, from the first run? Say the first 10 or so chapters?
0: The first 10 chapters, from the first volume, I think, again, I really love Chapter 5, uh, as we mentioned before, just the escalating chaos between, you know, Ataru is just trying to call Shinobu on the phone, Lum keeps interfering. There's so many great gags, like when Shinobu is trying to hang up the phone, like the word balloon that, uh, that's... Uh, representing Ataru's speech is like pushing the phone up like and you have like these little hands out of the word balloon that's so great like i love takahashi's like forked wall breaking eggs and gags that play with the form of comics
1: i do love when the hand comes out of the phone and scratches up his face (laughs) that's so good too I still laugh at that chapter. I think that is just, it's magnificently played because Ataru is kind of willing to risk it all in this one. He's like, he's really mm-hmm. trying. He's really putting everything on the line. And his dad actually kind of plays a bit of an important part in this chapter as well. It's a very small role, but just before he decides to go, you know, basically run out to Shinobu in the middle of a lightning storm that Lun's creating, uh, he gives him his old rubber raincoat to insulate him. And they kind of share a bit of a moment And that is never repeated again for the rest of the series.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Ataru's dad is usually such a passive character. But you can tell that, again, this story was meant to be kind of a climax for this early arc because it's like bringing in all these previous characters. It's having Ataru's parents play a major role in the story. And yeah, this is the biggest role Ataru's dad has and will ever have.
1: I think so. I do really like the... um I think it's a uh, uh, call in chapter 8, Good Day for a Departure, where Ataru actually goes off-world. Probably the first man to ever leave the solar system is basically kidnapped by Lum yeah. to take part in a like a, a settlement ritual with the uh with the seven lucky gods, one of which is the uh with the very attractive Benten. Uh she's introduced yeah. in that chapter as well. And of course Ataru hits on her. Uh, and I just I love the 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 Oni and my one of my favorite characters who Isn't one of the main cast is probably Lom's dad. Mm -hmm. He's big and strong, obviously very powerful. He's an Oni. He's basically the, you know, the, the ruler of his planet. He invades worlds. He's got a bit of a softer side to him as well, which you, you learn about later on, but his look is that of kind of like a a Yakuza character. He's kind of got the, the sleek hair and the, the, this, that big, powerful jawline. And I think he was kind of based off, you know, what you would, you'd think like a, a mafia boss in Japan would look like at the time.
0: I think so too, especially since the conflict between the Oni and the lucky gods in this chapter is kind of presented as kind of like a turf gang war kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it does play off uh, Japanese mythology there that, uh, you know, the seven lucky gods are kind of the good guys and the Onis are the bad guys.
0: Quote unquote. So yeah. in this situation, you know, they're, they're kind of on the even playing field here. I, think I don't so. think you can say <laughs> either side is worse than the other.
1: <laughs> but I do love it when they play around with Japanese mythology as well, because not a lot of manga really did that. And I think a lot of... Um Early manga that was translated to the West kind of shied away from that, worried that, uh, you know, people wouldn't understand the context of it. But here, like, this actually taught me about Japanese culture, and this taught me about what Setsubun was as well, which is pretty important to me when I was living in Japan.
0: Yuru and Rumuko Takashi's works in general really did give me such a deep interest in Japanese culture and like learning more about it. Because she really loves to use Japanese folklore and mythology in her stories. Not just in your set, but every series she makes incorporates elements of Japanese folklore and mythology in it. And it always makes me want to learn more about what kind of, what she's referencing and the history of it.
1: Indeed. And um, the the title itself, I've always loved. Um, I'm I'm glad that they're not calling it Lum in the West. They're actually just calling it Urusei mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing is that there's no real direct translation for what Urusei is, because even in J- in Japanese, it's a pun, and it's a pretty bad pun at that. And Urusei uses <laughs> lots and lots and lots of puns during its um during its tenure. Uh, a lot of it is kind of kanji based, but, uh, yeah, it, I so I think what's it usually, um, referred to in the West? I think it's those obnoxious. Those
0: obnoxious aliens mm. is what it's usually,
1: uh, referred to. And that's kind of accurate. That's as probably as good as you're going to get actually translating that thing because the say in this place, in this point is, uh, to say can mean kind of annoying or it's like a harsh, way of saying shut up and the only kanji in there is say which means planet or star mm-hmm. in that particular context so the whole thing is, is is a great pun if you understand what it is but just say calling it is also is kind of unique because it doesn't you know there, there was no uh direct translation for it uh, a lot of the time other than just calling it lum at least in the early days. So did you want to talk about the uh the recent release and how it compares to the the older releases?
0: I definitely do. First I do wanna note that there is an interesting uh translation note about the name Yurosigatra in one of the original floppies that Wiz did for the series, where they describe that the literal title of Yurosigatsu can mean those are noisy, annoying people from the star Uru. Mm. Which is why, generally, you know, they've truncated it to those obnoxious aliens when they want to, like, refer to it in English. But also why, generally, they leave it untranslated as Yorziata, because, like, there's just no, like, catchy way to translate
1: that. <laughs> no, there isn't.
0: Yorziata rolls off the tongue, it's just so memorable to say, but, like. Those uh, noisy, annoying people from the start, Uru, is a mouthful.
1: <laughs> it is. I, so I'm, That's why I'm so happy that they've kind of kept it in its Japanese form as well. It's kind of, they're not making apologies to to try and submit to Western audiences too much, which I think is good.
0: Most definitely. And I definitely think that you can see that with the new Viz release of the series. Even more so than the original Viz release, in which it is a very fateful Adaptation and translation of the original Japanese script. Obviously, there are some changes and localizations to translate things that are that would not make sense if if not left unadapted. For example, the famous uh, trans- joke in the first chapter, where like we have all these newscasters commenting in different languages, and <laughs> many of them, and who are speaking in the foreign language are saying things like, "This is a pen." in their
2: language
0: <laughs> but for anyone who doesn't know what they're saying they would be the wiser so those are like fun language jokes there
1: that was a particularly clever one because that is usually the very first English phrase that Japanese students learn when they start learning English mm-hmm. uh, which is always in school and they, they always use the first sentence they use is this is a pen and even my wife was taught that phrase first in English so, really? yeah, so it's kind of a f- bit of a, a famous phrase in Japan. Like everyone knows it, but it's not a particularly practical or useful phrase. <laughs> so when they did it for the new translation, they wrote Korewa pen or something like this, uh, something like that in, in Japanese. <laughs> so, yeah, they did a reverse translation joke, which I thought was really clever.
0: Yes. And in the original of this translation, they had that in French. Oh, like okay. Pen. <laughs> so, they left uh, other languages, the uh, commentators are speaking in, in, like, kanji, whereas in the original translation, they had it written out in English and uh, English letters, uh, what they were saying. Like, se un ten, and then what the Chinese commentator was saying was also written out with English letters. Like, hmm. But I think it was, like, actually nonsense gibberish. It probably was. What the Chinese was. guy saying. Moo guai pan dim sun chow mein.
1: Yeah, I know absolutely no Chinese, unfortunately. Th-
0: these are just references to Chinese dishes. I think this so. Yeah, actual
1: not not actual, <laughs> not, nothing useful. Chinese Chinese. <laughs> Chinese food. So, what did you think of the original Viz translation that came out in the in the early nineties?
0: So, the original translation took steps to adapt jokes that were steeped in Japanese culture, and make them understandable for unaware, like, English-speaking audiences, like, cultural like concepts. So, a good example is when Ataru is encountering Lum's dad for the first time. In the original joke, the, it is that Ataru is throwing sets beans at Lum's dad because he thinks, like, you know, he's an oni and stuff, so it's a sex thing. You uh, throw the beans to get to ward off the ogres but in the original translation because most uh, Americans English speakers don't know what sets of is they made it a Halloween joke so Ataru is they have it as Ataru is throwing candy uh, at uh, Lum's dad because he thinks he's some sort of uh, trick-or-treater in the Nile <laughs> and think he's some sort of trick-or-treater instead of like innate, being this only alien
1: I think that's actually kind of clever to do that I think I think that's too. like, yeah, I mean, as much as you'd want to use the original, I think adapting it to that was actually kind of a bit clever. But Setsuban yeah. is actually kind of unavoidable because there are several, several chapters in Urusei Atsura about yeah, Setsuban later so on. they may, may not on.
0: have been aware of them at the time that there would be Setsuban, like, stories as, like, a repeated thing.
1: And it's just a throwaway joke.
0: Yeah. They make cultural joke changes like that. Uh, one of my favorites in the first chapter is, like, cherry's introduction the original joke is that sakurambo introduces himself and then says call me cherry and like that the joke is that what you're making a pun on your name but in <laughs> uh in the viz original viz translation cherry introduces himself as cherry and then ataro said at ask cherry isn't that an unusual name for a monk and then cherry makes his joke i chose it in honor of the monastic life it looks soft and sweet from the outside, but once you get into it, it's the pits. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and that's the joke. So they really rewrite the joke there and, like, make it longer and completely change it, basically. And there mm. are many instances in that in the original translation when it comes to cultural jokes. This is where Riz's new editions differ in that all the original Japanese culture jokes are retained and are not altered. So, like, Cherry's joke remains that he introduces himself as Sakurambo, and the joke is, oh, he wants you to call him Cherry. It's a pun.
1: Mm. And there's a little asterisk there saying Sakurambo is Japanese for Cherry.
0: Yeah, so they have cultural notes Mm. in the first one. Like, they, they have cultural notes at the end of every volume that they put in this omnibus, like, to explain some cultural terms and context. You have, like, notes where, like, they explain what Setsuban is. They explain what the title of the series is, the significance game, the tag. So they have all these explanations. So instead of rewriting the jokes, they leave the jokes as is, but then they add these notes that allow you to understand, oh, okay, here's the cultural context. This is what it's referencing.
1: Which I think is the best way you can do it as well. Yes. I do love reading through the, the liner notes and the, and the cultural notes. It should be added that on the original... VHSs of the English release of Urusei They actually came with a pamphlet as well that kind of explained all of that.
0: Yes, Anime Go's liner notes were so comprehensive and informative.
1: I think they were great. I just, I love. I still have the very, very first uh, VHS that I bought at a great expense. It Was about fifty dollars back in nineteen nineties money in Australia, which so that was very, very expensive for me at the time. I. Watched it so many times, and I pored all over those liner notes, just reading. And go, oh, okay, I get this now. This makes sense. I think Anamigo did a great job of translating that series originally as well.
0: Most definitely, and you can still access their liner notes for at least the first eighty or so episodes through their website. They still have PDFs of those available. Oh, well, that's good. So those are definitely worth a read if you want to learn like more of the cultural context behind the series and like what informs what jokes and stuff
1: so it sets I'll, I'll briefly explain it's something that you do in a japanese house basically every kind of at the end of winter so kind of early february is when it usually happens or when it always happens and you throw dried beans so like dried lentil beans uh and someone will often dress up as an oni like put an, an oni Mask on their face, which you can get from like the hundred yen shop. They threw beans, and and you get chased out the door, saying, you know, go out bad luck, come in good luck. And then you put uh, mm-hmm. you put some of the beans in all of the entranceways to the house to invite good luck in. So it's kind of like preparing for the year. And of course, being you know six foot one and <laughs> rather large, uh, broad shoulders, I'm always the oni <laughs> So <laughs> so even when I was living in Japan, like the school children. At set time, would throw beans at me and chase oh. me out of the school building. <laughs> so I've I've been like the literal oni in these situations before. But it's just a, and we still do it in our house as well. So it's a, it's just a nice little ritual you can have, and you know, pass down the the traditions to your to our children or child oh, that in this sounds case.
0: adorable and kind of painful.
1: I hope they didn't throw those beans too hard. <laughs> Well, my daughter didn't. My wife, on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> so what, how do you think the, um, the manga of the original Viz translation to the new translation compares now? Are you, um, do you miss the old translation at all? Or do you think that they, just, they did all the steps right with the new one this time?
0: The new translation is undeniably more faithful and accurate to Rumiko Takahashi's original vision. And that is what I want. I really appreciate the original translation, of course, because I think that they did a really good job adapting the series for English-speaking audiences who would have no awareness of many of the cultural references made in Yurisui Yatsura. But I think that we're in a place nowadays where people getting into anime and manga are more willing and ready and eager to learn about japanese culture and they don't mind having these liner notes at the back of the volumes like explaining what the cultural context of the jokes and what is informing the story so this is sticking true to the vision of takahashi and i think that is the most important
1: i think so too do you have any do you have any kind of not complaints per se but do you have anything that kind of sticks out at you and you kind of think oh maybe they should have done that a bit differently this time around
0: well, my only complaint with this, what I think is just a beautiful uh, release of the series. Like, they have released your under their Viz signature line. So, it's this big, thick omnibus with great paper stock. It's got a really nice, striking cover. and I think it's a great-looking book, and I, I think it's a great read. My only complaint with this release is that this is based on the Shinsuban volumes in Japan. This release uh, included the special, like, My Lum sections at the end of every volume, where our mangaka who were inspired by Yurisyastra drew Lum and explained a little bit of their connection to the series. And Viz retained Rumiko Takahashi's Mylum section at the back of the first volume, but they did not contain Mitsuru Adachi, which is included in the second volume. And that makes me concerned that they will not keep these going forward, which is a real shame because I have always wanted to read these Mylum sections and read about how so many famous mangaka, like Hiromu Arakawa, Gosho Ayama, Junji Ito, were inspired by and love your Atsura. And I would love to read those comments, and I hope they retain those in future volumes. But alas, Adachi's, which should be at the end of Volume 2, was not kept in this edition. I do really like the data files, though, and I'm glad that they've kept those in, because those are a lot of fun.
1: Those are very interesting to read. It is a shame that they don't have those, but that could also be a rights issue because it's someone else's art, not Takahashi's. So it could be that that tricky situation of they might actually get have to get permission from Adachi to actually print that.
0: Perhaps, though. I feel it was a part of the original release of these books in Japan. I, mm. I feel like they should be retained. At the very least, I hope they keep them for artists that this works with in terms of what series are releasing, like Gosho Yama of Detective Conan fame, and Yu of Saras and Fuyushigi Yumi fame. I would ideally love to see all the My Love sections uh, retained, because I would like to see, like, how various and very popular mangaka have been inspired by the series, and how that has kind of informed them.
1: I think that would be, that would be really nice, but, um, I'm not sure if they're gonna be able to do it or not, which is, mm-hmm. Kind of a bit of a loss there, but at the same time, I'm just glad that we're just getting a new English release, uh, because it yeah. was never, it should be stated that Viz never published all of Urusei Atsaro the first time round. I think they got about mm-hmm. halfway through, I want to say.
0: Not even that. They covered about 11 volumes worth of the manga, but even then, there was about two volumes worth of chapters that they had skipped. Mm, okay. I think so the very least. Their release ultimately was 11 volumes long which were the two Lum volumes which were later collected into Lum the Perfect uh, Edition and then there were the nine Return of Lum volumes. But yeah so there were missing chapters in those volumes for sure that should have been there but were not there. But regardless they only got about a third of the ways through the series and they stopped in 1998 so It was 20 years of no continuation, no release of the manga of Yuris until last July they announced that they would do these omnibus editions at San Diego Comic-Con. And that was such a joy to hear. And now the books in my hand came out in February of 2019. They're going to be releasing these every three months. And I'm so overjoyed that we have this beautiful new release of Yuris Which, I'm sad that we don't have these Milam sections, but you know, that's such a small complaint when we're getting a re-release of the manga
1: that will be completed in full. And I think that's really good that they're actually doing it all the way through this time as well. Cause I remember buying the very last issue uh, of the return of Lum, which is what they called it. And I remember reading the note at the back saying this will unfortunately be the last issue of Lum. And that was just like a, that was just like a a normal standard comic. It wasn't even a graphic novel. Uh, And they were releasing them in that style by the end. However, there are fan translations out there of the entire series
0: yeah, that's how I read it.
1: Which is really good. And it's a, an, it's a testament to, you know, to show how popular Lum is. When I was mm-hmm. living in Japan, secondhand bookshops are very prevalent over there and uh, secondhand manga is actually quite cheap. You can get a volume of Rusayatsura for about a hundred yen or 200 yen. So I used to, when I was learning Japanese, I would buy those and read them. And then I think I had most of the manga at some point in Japanese. Like they had what they call the wide editions, which was about two in one.
0: Yes. I have those editions as well.
1: And I still have the first one, but I sold the rest of mine before I came back. And mm. the good thing about that, a lot of manga is that, I'm not so good with kanji, which is like the really, the really difficult Chinese style lettering, but they have a hiragana translation next to it. So if you don't know the kanji, you can still read the hiragana of it. And with the comic panels, you can kind of work out what's going on. So I did a lot of, a lot of reading and I learned a lot of Japanese that way. So I'm actually kind of pretty familiar with a lot of how Urusei Atsara was from those editions, which is interesting because people are, are saying, oh, the, these, some of these stories are out of order, or these ones have been taken out. And it all kind of gets mixed up in my head because I've read two different versions of it, I suppose. I have read the English yeah. translation, uh, fan translation as well, all the way to the end. And it's a pretty good translation, i got to say.
0: Yeah, I went from... The Viz translations to the new translations, I didn't really notice it was a different until later when I was like, oh yeah, these early chapters that were Mira, those were what Viz did. No wonder that they were Mira. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I own the entire series in Japanese and I don't know Japanese, but like, I love this series so much that I just had to have it in Japanese afterwards. But I've reread the series... Uh, several times myself, and I'm glad to have like a new official release that will cover the entire series in English for the first time.
1: Indeed, it's it's wonderful to to get our hands on it. I'm not even actually sure what the release schedule is for these either. I don't know like what the space it's is between. Every
0: three months. So the next volume is going to come out in May 2019, and the next one after that will be August, and then November. So it'll come out like every three months.
1: Oh, nice. Okay, well, that's pretty good. And they're not—they're uh, not terribly expensive either, which I really appreciate. Because some some manga are like, especially the new ones that are coming out, they kind of are really getting pricey in Australia at the moment because our exchange rate mm. isn't so good. So, so sometimes I look at those prices and just go, oh, maybe I should just like buy the cheap version in Japan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean. The Japanese volumes are quite expensive. I also bought the first two volumes in Japanese on Bookwalker. And they were only like $3 each, which is quite a good deal. Very good. But yeah, the volumes available on Bookwalker are the Shinso bonds which the Omnibuses are covering. So it's a really nice point of comparison to just flip through those and then compare... With the uh, new arm buses, and you like mentioned
1: something that they were mirrored, and that's that's actually a pretty important point because what they used to do with manga when it was being released in the uh, late eighties and early nineties, when it started to become more of a thing in the West, is that they would basically turn everything back to front. They would create a mirror image so the books can be read from the normal Western perspective of left, to, left right. to right. And at some point in the early or mid 2000s, they went, oh, bugger this. This is too hard. And they, just, <laughs> they just had a note at the end of the book or the beginning of the book. If you're reading it Western style to say, uh-uh, don't read it this way. Go back to the other side of the book. This is how Japanese people read.
0: Yeah, it was definitely confusing to me as a kid when you had multiple series that they had some books that were flipped and then there were some books that were unflipped. So, I think
1: Ranma was all flipped. I think they released the entirety of Ranma.
0: Yeah, first time through, Rana was all flipped. Hmm. But Inuyasha, that was flipped for like the first 30 or something volumes, and then they unflipped it for the <laughs> remaining volumes. So that was kind of confusing. Dragon Ball as well, they had it flipped for the first couple of volumes of both like Dragon Ball and DBZ because they split them into two series and then at some point they just started releasing them all the correct way. <laughs> so reading manga as a kid I was like this is confusing why are some books you have to read it this way while some books I read the other way. Ah,
1: I'm just really glad that they kind of presented them in their original state because i think that's also mm-hmm. kind of important it's probably less work for them as well because mirror imaging oh, all yeah. those all those chapters especially using early 90s technology must have been a huge pain in the ass i reckon
0: and because they were rewriting jokes and they had to redo all the sound effects there was a heavy amount of redrawing in those uh, early you we know, like chapters that visited all the stuff they did in the 90s Like, the pre-digital era. They lettered all the sound effects by hand. Oh, yeah. And they lettered the entire (laughs) thing by hand. So you can definitely notice where they have to redraw word balloons and redraw pieces of art in these series. Which is another reason why I really like this new re-release. Because with that early release, because they had to enlarge word balloons and stuff or change sound effects and stuff, there's... A lot of the original art that is obscured are lost, but with this new re-release, like, everything is retained as it should be. Uh, Sound effects are still redrawn, but, like, they're still done in a way that it's not obscuring art that you could see in the original Japanese.
1: And do you, th- do you still think that they should have redone all of those sound effects? Because a lot of manga out there, and Evangelion is a good example of this, they just left all of the, uh, the original sound effects in, which were mostly katakana, they just left those alone and left them in there. So do you think they should have left it alone, or are you glad that they, um, they redid them in English?
0: I wouldn't have minded if they left them alone. This generally prefers to redo all their sound effects for the series they work on in English. The one exception being Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, which that's just so much a part of the aesthetic with Jojo's. They will not touch them.
1: Yeah, I've seen the format of that. It plays a pretty important part in the way that the yeah. art style is, is kind of projected onto the page.
0: It's essential to the compositions in mm. Jojo's for sure. I Actually, I think that a lot of the sound effects uh, in the new Viz release I like them but I actually prefer the original sound effects used in Viz's original version from the 90s because I just think that a lot of the sound effects they lettered in the original translation they did were a lot more fun in terms of like the kind of kind of uh, sound effects they used and like the expressions they used to communicate like a certain motions and noises
1: they had a bit of they had a lot of fun with that those uh, early translations i think and and it really shows
0: most definitely there is like something notable with this change of sound effects that uh is not retained in the english version that's present in the japanese Mm -hmm. is that like takahashi has this tendency to like elongate her sound effects like where there's like a line in between like the first couple letters of the kanji and the last to like Give this sense of, like, it's like adding, like, multiple different O's in a Zoom.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: She does that a lot with her sound effects in, you know, the original version. But, you know, that is not really retained in the Viz version so much. So I thought that was kind of a a shame because a lot of, like, that line she draws to emphasize that the sound is being elongated... I think it is is often used in a very artistic way that it draws the reader's eye to where it needs to be in a panel. For, like, when Lum is arriving in, like, that first chapter, there is, like, this sound effect that is, like, leading you to, like, the bottom of the page or whatever. So it's, like, leading you to where you should look like seeing like the impact and like all these people like going yikes and stuff whereas in the viz version you have this rumble and this flash but like my eye doesn't like immediately go right down to the bottom of that panel like i do with the original japanese where that sound effect like really directs your eye to like that impact moment at the bottom of that
1: it's all part of the composition and it's, it, it's mm-hmm. difficult to understate or overstate how important onomatopoeia is to Japanese people because they love sounds and they love, they have a whole vernacular about what things sound like and they sound to Japanese people different from how they sound to us, which is interesting. So we think a cow, uh, sorry, a, um, a pig goes oink oink. That's how we say it in English. But to them, um, they say a pig goes boo boo. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of interesting, and and they just love sound effects, and it's become so much part of the composition of panels and the way that mangaka really actually take it into the way that they make a page, and it becomes part of their art, effectively, a lot more so than we do in the West. Most definitely. The one thing I was going to mention, which I found a little bit odd in the translation, and I think they've done a fantastic job, but at one stage, they say, uh, they kind of translate Oni, which is uh, Lum's species name, to Ogre. And while that is pretty much the most direct translation you're going to get, I can't help that that might bite them at some point in the future.
0: I definitely think there's Oni-based puns that they're going to have to rewrite.
1: Yes, yes, there definitely are. And you know, Oni, in the terms of Japanese context, becomes a big part of it because this is the oni that is haunting ataru's life you know she's living in the house so in the setsuban sort of way they can't get rid of this oni that's in there and ogre is not a bad translation i just kind of wish they just said oni and then just had like a little asterisk saying oni is like um japanese for ogre but that's yeah. i think my only one little thing that bugged me a little bit i suppose but other than that i think it's a it's a fantastic translation
0: i definitely agree i'm very happy with it I really have to give kudos to the team at Viz responsible for this new release because they just did an amazing job with it. And I know that so many people at Viz have been wanting to re-release Yurusiata for a long time. I remember I talked with a Viz representative at New York Comic Con a few years ago, you know, about, you know, whether they would ever think of re-releasing UI. And they say, you know, it would come up every now and again, but like there were no plans would ever move forward. But I'm glad that finally, you know, someone decided that, no, this needs to happen and we are going to make this happen. And I think because it's part of their this
1: signature collection is how they managed to get it to work. Because yeah. releasing, oh, what, it had 29 volumes or however long the original 34. release was. 34. That's a concerted effort. This way they only have to release, you know, a lot, a lot fewer than that, 17 yeah. or... So I suppose now we should talk a little bit, um, we've already gone an hour, but we'll talk a little bit about the cultural impact of Urusei Atsara.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Urusei Atsara, I think, is like the Simpsons of anime and manga in terms of its influence on the comedy that we see nowadays replicated and popularized in most anime and manga. A lot of the slapstick, a lot of kind of the cliches, the jokes, I think were codified in your siastra, And this is kind of like the primordial state.
1: I think a lot of people often point out that Lum was the first waifu. And I'm not a I'm not a particularly big <laughs> fan of that term, but she was this breakout character, this like sexy yet sort of pure and innocent sort of thing that people really got attached to. And there were uh, like there were popular Lum cosplayers back in the the 1980s, and mm. cosplay isn't so much of a, a as recent as people think it is. You know, there were groups of people doing it not just in Japan, but also in, in America in the 80s as well, and they were cosplaying Japanese characters. In terms of, of the cultural impact, I think the manga in Japan definitely had an impact for readers at the time, uh, so much so that they made Takahashi basically bring Lum back in to the manga. But I think the anime itself is really what blew everything out of the water. This is 195 episodes, which is the most of any of Takahashi's uh, anime adaptions. I think uh, Inuyasha might come close.
0: Inuyasha comes close with 193 episodes, if you include final act, But that still falls short of your seance, especially when you count the OVAs, which add to the episode count.
1: And the anime did a lot for anime adaptions as well. One of the interesting things that it did was actually use pop songs as the title sequence. So everyone in Japan knows... Even if they've never seen, uh, an episode of Urusei Atsara, they know number one, who Lum is, because it's still very, uh, pervasive through the culture. And number two, they know of song, which is the original theme, because it starts off very, very fast and, and very peppy. And occasionally I will see on Japanese television when I'm, when I'm over there, I usually go over there for a month every year, they have game shows and they'll have like, they'll start playing the, the start of, uh, like some famous anime and you have to guess what it is immediately. And the right. ones that always get guessed immediately are Evangelion and Urusei
0: Wow. Yeah, it's pretty awesome that Urusei gets guessed as easily as uh, Eva mm. uh, in terms of like how iconic its opening theme is. But yeah, on to that point, like, Urusei Yatsura definitely introduced this idea of having the synergistic effect of using an anime opening team to kind of promote a pop singer or a pop group so we would have like songs like rock the planet or take the chance on love like songs that are not necessarily like team songs that describe the series but they are done by popular singers and artists and so this is like a way to kind of promote those artists through the anime and, like, yeah. this is a trend that we see continue to this day in which, like, anime openings are kind of used as vehicles to, like, promote a new single by
1: a pop. And this was all very new at the time. And your your comparison to The Simpsons is very apt, actually, because obviously this was before The Simpsons. But because it used a lot of cultural touchstones and mythology of uh, Japan, it it really... Resonated with a lot of people there, and it went on for a very long time. And there were six movies, although we don't like to talk about the fourth, sixth (laughs) movie. (laughs) Uh, There were a lot of OVAs, and everyone knows who Lum is. And Lum has a pachinko machine (laughs) and a slot Mm -hmm. machine, and and you know it's still she's still a popular character despite the fact that nothing. Has really been, nothing new has really been done with this character for the past, oh, I don't know, I'd say 10 years. I think about 10 years ago they released one more episode as an OVA yes. for, um, for an anniversary.
0: Yes, uh, Shonen Sunday's 40th anniversary, I believe. Mm. But it was no, 45th anniversary. But it was for Shonen Sunday's anniversary and also an anniversary of Rumiko Takahashi. So they have, like, a trilogy of OVAs, one for Yosey one for Rama, and one for Miyasha.
1: And uh, I remember that because I was actually at the exhibition. They actually had a uh, Rumiko Takahashi exhibition in Ginza in Tokyo. And I was very, very, very fortunate enough to be able to go to that. And they had a whole lot of her original drawings. And uh, one of the ones, uh, one of the pictures in the new volume about halfway through is of Lum looking very much like an uh, an Inuyasha sort of character.
0: She's definitely more of Takashi's later style, like the yes. more angular lines and softer features that you'll see in late Inuyasha and in Renee.
1: And it's it's interesting to to note that. That was actually at the exhibition, and there was a note underneath saying, I was really afraid of drawing Lum properly because I haven't drawn her in years. And so she was actually really nervous about redrawing one of her, like, signature characters just because she hasn't, she hasn't actually done it in such a long time. And that's why it has, she has such a different look to her. But, you know, you can still tell that it's, uh, you know, it's Takahashi's work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the cultural impact in Japan was kind of still felt by anime to this day because not only was it long running it introduced uh like this kind of concept of a comedy which talks about Japanese culture you know and there was there was a bit of political commentary of the day as well and especially social of the satire. Um, yep so there was a lot of social satire and just what Japan was like in the 80s because it was a a very different place. We were talking about the economic bubble here where everyone had lots of money, and I say everyone, but not everyone, because Ataru's family are kind of in a, you know, they're they're not poor, they own a house, but they're also kind of in a a slightly lower socioeconomic area. Yeah. And, you know, the dad works full-time and comes back tired, and the mum's always angry, and Ataru always goes out and spends his allowance on, you know, chasing women.
0: It's definitely a time capsule of kind of, like, the domestic issues of Japanese society of the day. And it's really interesting to look back at a lot of the stories from that historical kind of context and see, oh, this is kind of like what Takahashi was thinking about and what was like inspiring the way these stories were written. And like the way Urusiasu would be written now would be much different because like times have changed so much.
1: And I don't think you could get away with a character like Ataru these days, not not to that full extent anyway.
0: You can get away with it because so many anime series do still nowadays, but I don't know he'd be as, as beloved as he is as a character. I mean, I think there is a lot of, like, forgiveness Tronataru's way for a lot of his behavior because he is a character from this classic influential series so we can overlook some of the more problematic aspects of him. Much like Master Roshi in Dragon Ball does some pretty heinous things, uh, in the beginning of that series. But we still look back at Master Roshi and say, oh, Master Roshi, he was such a great character. And heck, even I do. I love, uh, Master Roshi at his best. But, you know, there are, there are things that, uh, the the ca- character did that were, that Toriyama had him do because that was not no one really was putting a critical eye on saying, "Hey, characters sh- should not do these things. These are setting a bad example for uh, Japanese children, normalizing bad behaviors." And Ataru is very much the same way. Like a lot of the perverse things he does, and the way that he will uh, treat women, uh, particularly like uh, when he goes to the extent of a sexual assault, is very terrible. Uh, behaviors that should not be just so easily dismissed, but you know, at because at the time no one was examining these like, these concepts critically, they were just able to like be passed off as silly comedy. And what helped Yurisayatra and what helped Satoru as a character is, you know still be enjoyable in spite of having those jokes. Is that you know again Yurisayatra is a zany cartoon universe where like everyone is engaged in all this slapstick comedy and constantly violating each other's like <laughs> rights and beating up on each other. So it's, it's kind of this anything goes world that you're not really meant to take too seriously. And that really helps. It.
1: You're definitely not meant to take it too seriously. But also, interestingly, Ataru deserves Lum because Lum can punish him severely for whenever he steps out of line and he steps out of line a lot. And I think that's also important, but there is one other thing about Ataru for all of his faults, for all of his sexual harassment, which is, it's such an odd thing to say, but that's, that's exactly what it is. He is a good person at heart and he does (laughs) the right thing in many situations even if it takes him a while, but he is a good person and he has done many heroic things. And I think that's the difference between him and uh, when you meet Mendo a bit later on, because Mendo is just like a, basically a rich version of him. Like he's just more suave and he's handsome and he can get away with it. But in the end, like Ataru really pulls through in a lot of ways that just Mendo never does.
0: Yeah, there are layers to Ataru's character. He is more complex beneath his surface, and when you start to peel back those layers, you can see and understand why he might be doing the things he does, and see that a lot of the things he does, a lot of his moments of pity, his moments of extreme perversion, are kind of acting out in a way uh, that's kind of interesting to like think about. But with Mendo, he is a much simpler character. What you see is what you get, and they're not. There is not much more to him than that.
1: No, that's very true. An
0: <laughs> fairly enjoyable character. But whereas Atariu is a good person beneath the facade of bad behavior he puts up a front of uh, showing, uh, Mendo does not hide. I mean, Mendo makes a pretense of being like a better person than who he is, hmm. but there really is not much more than what you you see him do. There is no, like, moments of surprise with Mendo and how he treats people. Maybe a little more so in the anime where he has some more moments of intelligence and emotional depth, but definitely in the manga, no, he's such a, he's a much simpler character.
1: He is. And he is, he is meant to be just the antithesis and also, like, the two sides of the same coin to Ataru. And he, the, he needed a human antagonist towards him. Mm. And those two do work together usually to perv on women, but they do work together occasionally. And I do like those episodes when they work together because it kind of shows you how similar they are. But yeah. there is one point in the manga, and I, I remember this very clearly because, like, Mendo is kind of a pest and, you know, he's a fun character and everything. But at one stage late, kind of, I think it's one of the later me- chapters in the manga, Mendo, uh, Ataru is tied up and Mendo, with his sword, literally tries to kill Ataru. Like, he, he yeah. kind of usually tries it and ataru just does the cool you know like slapping of the sword uh catching of the sword with the palms of his hands but there's one point when he's tied up and mendo is just going this is it this is the only chance i'm going to get to bloody well finish this right now (laughs) and that kind of shows you the kind of character that mendo really is at heart because he could get away with it because he's rich
0: yeah i mean a lot of these characters would not think twice of throwing the (laughs) other under the bus or downright (laughs) killing them like as we mentioned before with love and it's just not... It's just... This is just a silly Looney Tunes-esque universe where, you know, they'll do horrible things to each other, but at the end of the day, it's like, ah, oh, well...
1: That's the way it goes. It resets.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're on good terms in the next chapter.
1: He... Um, so what I will finally say is that when Ataru does have these moments of chivalry, when he does, actually does... You do peel back the layers and he does something very noble or kind-hearted, which he does more than you'd think, you kind of begin to understand why Lum stays with him because Mm -hmm. she obviously sees that from the start with him. She sees that he is a good person deep down and just wishes that he would stay noble to her. But, of course, he has other ideas. And it's not just the fact that he's interesting and things happen around him, but she really is attracted to him on that deep, deep level.
0: Yeah, Lum knows the person Ataru could be, and really is, and like, she wants him to be the best person he can be. There are times where mom does, like, forget or think to herself, why am I still into Ataru? Like, why do I still cling on him? And then it's those moments where, like, she's reminded, yeah, this is why, because, like, Ataru can be really kind. Ataru is always fun to be around. And yeah, I really do love, like, that there is a deeper reason for, like, why Lum still hangs around Atara when you know the setup is just originally all meant to be based on a misunderstanding. There wasn't meant to be anything deeper to it at the beginning of the series, but not at all. <laughs> as it was developed, like these characters truly do understand each other and become emotionally invested in each other in a deeper way. And the core conflict of the series to me is the challenge of growing up and like embracing adulthood. And so that to me like a lot of ataru like confessing and admitting his feelings to Lum, and like giving up on his playboy ways is like skirt hunting ways and like just staying in a committed relationship with Lum is like the sign of adulthood the thing like he's trying to avoid
1: yeah and that's that's very true and if that happened that would be the end of the series yeah, and it kind of does happen in in the final chapter, a little bit. But it, it, it is notable that, that Ataru throughout the series, unlike Takahashi's other characters, Ataru just does actually say he loves Lum. He he says it several times. But he also <laughs> loves all the other girls as well. There's always a caveat of... Lum will say, don't you love me? And she goes, yeah, I love you. You're awesome. But, you know, I, I also love Shinobu. I also love Sakura. <laughs> I yeah. also love Benten.
0: This is another thing, though, that, like, this... That, that starts off being true that Ataru loves Lum as much as the other girls. But over the course Hmm. of the series, he begins to like realize to himself that what he, he really does love Lum more than other girls. Lum is truly special in his heart. Like, to me, such an important moment for Ataru's character is Inaba the Dreammaker, where he sees his dream that he has his harem, and this is a dream he's created himself, but Lum isn't in this harem because in this future dream that he's created, like, his terrible behavior has driven Lum off. Hmm. And so he's incredibly frustrated and upset himself. And you have to keep in mind that this is the future Ataru himself, like, dreamed up. He created it. It should not have gone wrong... If he had created it the way he intended to, because we see Shinobu's dream, and Shinobu's dream future is exactly the way she intended it to be. In with Ataru, though, it's gone wrong because, like, to me, that reflects like this deep subconscious understanding that he can't have Lum and have other girls. Like, he has to be committed to Lum if he's going to truly be in a relationship with her. And that's like this struggle that he is dealing with through the entire series and that kind of culminates in the final arc.
1: And that is interesting as well, because in that chapter, Ataru does see a possible future where he is marrying Lum and he tries to save that future. He sees it and goes, oh, my God, I'm marrying Lum. But she looks so happy. She just looks so content. And he tries to save that future. And he, that future actually is <laughs> actually destroyed. But it doesn't yeah. matter because Lum says, I saw what you did. You tried to save our future together. And that's when you realize that even though he couldn't save that particular future, it doesn't matter. Because he did yeah. the right thing by Lum in the end. And Lum saw that.
0: That story encapsulates the themes of Heroes so well, because the core message of that story is, like, your futures are not predetermined. Uh, you can create your own futures, and so nothing is set in stone. And so that's why all the futures are, like, destroyed at the end of that story. Like, symbolically, it's like, you know, they don't need to know what lies in store in their futures. They'll create their own futures. And I
1: really love that. Just to turn it right back around to the beginning of this podcast, we discussed uh, how Ataru went to the future and saw himself with Shinobu and a child.
0: Well, he didn't see that he was with Shinobu in the first time he
1: went to the future. He, no, he that's knew that true. He, had he a didn't. Child. But we we saw as the as the reader, we saw that future. They never translate they never brought that over to the anime because by that stage the manga was so different from the early episodes
0: but i think that was such a loss because that chapter to me is so important to the story and to the overall like team and idea that you know these characters are struggling with their oncoming adulthood they're wondering about what their futures are and then they see their futures and they don't want to have this future and-
1: yes, that's true, but they did reference it in this episode, in this Inuba, mm-hmm. the Dreammaker episode. They do show basically that sort of future where he does mm-hmm. marry Shinobu and they do have a child. It's not, it's nowhere near as complex and it's just kind of very brief, but they do show that. And I really like that. Eventually they did kind of get around to using that particular bit of, bit of canon, I suppose you could say. Yeah. So how about we, uh, how about we end off with some listener questions, which is funny because this is the first episode. Um uh, but we did go out to Twitter, uh, namely you went out to Twitter and we got some and read it as well. And we actually got some questions for our first episode, which I think is fantastic. Thank you so much for sending those through.
0: Yeah. I'm so happy that we received so many questions and got a lot of responses. And you guys asked some really great questions though. I will, before we go on to questions, like I, just want to say that there's so much more with your that I we can depth we'd love to like go into and talk about. I think we'll say that for future episodes. Like even in terms of like influence, the influence your has, I think there's just so many more aspects to that we didn't uh, touch upon that we can go into later. But uh, I think yeah, so too. Yeah, we to questions, and uh, those will be definitely future topics for uh, you know the show down the line.
1: But, I think today yeah. we, we really focused on the manga a lot, and I think in the, maybe in the next episode we'll focus on the, um, the anime and the movies and OVAs.
0: Yeah, I think those will be our next couple episodes, like primers mm. on the anime, primers on the movies, uh, and then after that I think we'll do some deep dives into like specific, like, topics of what ways was your seanser influential? twin a topic of, like character analysis episodes deep uh, analysis of like chapters or storylines i think there's so many things that we want to do with this podcast and your seanser has such a wealth of content and the, like so much to explore in it that you know i'm really excited to see where we'll go with this
1: yeah, me too, definitely. I think I think it is a very deep well that we can go down. And I, I want to talk about the fandom and collecting because that's uh that's one of my my hobbies as well. I'm an Urusayatsara collector, and I'll I'll talk about that in future episodes. So uh what we'll do is I'll I'll read out some of the questions we got on Twitter, and you can read out some of the questions we got on Reddit. Sounds great. Okay, so um our first question is why am I obsessed with a manga twice as old as I am? Alternatively why does it still hold up today? I think we've 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 touched on that quite a bit actually. There's a there's a timelessness to Usayatsura because although it is a product of its time as we've stated, you know, there's there's no like Japanese 80s computers or Famicoms or anything like that. It's just it's just a house with the characters and the characters are timeless.
0: Much like great Looney Tunes shorts. And much like great entertainment of any era, the characters and stories are rooted in recognizable and relatable things no matter where you are. They're truly universal. And so the conflicts in the stories told with them, uh, there's so much enjoyment to be uh, had out of them because you can connect with and you can relate to what the situations are, even if there are like cultural differences like the very core emotional heart of a story or like the very core idea of a joke or of like a, a little skit you can understand and appreciate
1: indeed right uh, on the next question uh <laughs> this oh, one's, I- I'll have I'll have to edit this one a bit on a scale of 1 to 10 how effable is mendo so this comes from a person who really, really loves Mendo. This is um uh Buddy Buddy tune. is really, really obsessed with Mendo. Can you answer this question? Come the forever. That's the one. So this is Amber. Amber has uh sorry, I do love his <laughs> tweets, but sometimes they go in a very, very bizarre direction, which is like, why is this on my timeline? <laughs> so I don't think I can answer that question because I I think Mendo I think Mendo is kind of what he is. He does have a slight depth to him. And you find out more about Mendo's past and why he's afraid of the dark and everything, but he's kind of there to serve as a foil to Ataru in a lot of ways. And as you said before, what you see is what you get.
0: Mendo is a different character between the manga and anime to me. In the anime, Mendo is given like more emotional understanding. Like he is more aware of other people's feelings and he is more like insightful as a person, whereas manga mendo is just as much of an idiot as Ataru and lacking any emotional understanding that Ataru has. So they're kind of like different characters in terms of these different interpretations, but in terms of like how attractive mendo is to me, he's not really attractive as a character to
1: me. <laughs> okay, next question. do you consider Ataru and Lam married or just fiances? Uh this person, uh, which is Ataru Maruboshi, with the at as serving as the a, on Twitter, mm-hmm. considers them fiancés. So this is an interesting question that does come up occasionally in the anime. They definitely say they're married, and I think Lum just says that they're married.
0: Yeah, I think a lot Lum- of the time. Uh, just says that they're married like they don't have a official wedding ever so uh, they're basically just fiancés they're basically like engaged to be wed but the wedding hasn't happened like it hasn't been made official yet i don't think they've like signed any official documents saying like they're a married couple or anything
1: i think from because from lum is obviously from a different planet and a different culture i think um and she does talk about ray as her ex-fiancee, but not as her ex-husband. So that adds another kind of more complicated layer to it. But I do, I guess just from, from Ataru's perspective, not at all. Neither yeah. of those. From Lum's perspective, they're married because, you know, even if it's not official, they live together and they kind of do everything together. And I think in her, in her head, that's basically what being married is all about.
0: Basically. I mean, they spend a lot of time together. They do live with each other, so you could say that they're basically a married couple. Though, you know, a lot of couples live together for a long time before they officially get married too. So that's very they true. Could like, still be in, like that, Ranma uh,
1: and state. Uh, Ranma and uh, Akane basically live in the same house, and they're fiancés as well. It's a-
0: that is true
1: that's a kind of a different kettle of fish, really, but I, I suppose it's all from Lum's perspective there. Okay, next, uh, from, uh, Super Jeff Tendo. Will the whole series ever get a, a DVD slash Blu-ray release?
0: There's also a question by, from, uh, Chisome RW, which is very similar. Is there any information on a US Blu-ray release of Yurziatra? And I feel like with both of those questions, like, I don't think we have a definitive answer at this point. Well, I mean, will the whole series ever get a DVD Blu-ray release? Like, in Japan, it does have a full Blu-ray release. But, like, in terms of, like, English U.S. release, I don't think that's in the cards yet. Disco did their beautiful Dreamer release last year, and I heard that did very well for them. But I don't know what their future plans with the series are. But I feel like if anyone would take a chance on re-releasing it, it would be them.
1: I think that's correct. Um, the beautiful dreamer, uh, Blu ray that came out last year is frankly beautiful. Uh, and mm-hmm. the director's commentary is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. The director of the first two films also went on to do, um, Ghost in the Shell, which is uh, yeah, very, she- yep. Uh, not only just popular, but critically acclaimed. Uh, and he, apparently the story goes that he and, uh, Rumiko Takahashi don't get along very well, or they've only met each other a couple of times. There, there is like rumors and, uh, and scuttlebutt about that.
0: Yeah. I definitely buy that they don't see eye to eye about like what the core of the series is. I mean you definitely get it in like episode one hundred six, in the last two episodes of Oshi's run. It's like this big story about Lum losing her memory, moving over to Endo, and Ataro going to like get Lum back. And it all ends with like the stormtroopers just sighing that, well, things have gone back to saying nothing will ever change and they sigh. And I think that encapsulates like how Oshi felt about the series like he, he was not a fan that it was like this static thing where the status quo didn't change whereas from takahashi's perspective i think that's what she liked about it that's what she wanted it was like these characters are young they're in their their springtime of youth and like the series is about them enjoying their life in their youth you know worried about like becoming adults but like living their lives to the fullest like at, while they still can So like, I think they had different philosophies of what the, about what the series should be about.
1: I think so. And, but to be, at the end of the day, they are Takahashi's characters. And I love the first two movies and especially Beautiful Dreamer. But when you get right down to it, she created those characters. So there's a sense of, of ownership there, which I just don't think he can attest to.
0: To be fair, I think Oshii understood the characters. I do feel like. Oh, definitely. He did. Yeah. With the anime original episodes, like, oh, she did understand, like, what these characters were, like, who they are as people. I think he just had an issue with, like, the idea that the status quo could never change. And in general, I think that Oshi is more interested in these heady, like, sci-fi and philosophical ideas than kind of the wacky slapstick comedy that Yurisiyatsura is.
1: And I think that shows especially in Beautiful Dreamer. But as mm-hmm. to the, um, the, there are DVD and there are Blu-ray releases, uh, in Japan, of course. There was a DVD release in the early 2000s. I want to say it was by Anamigo. Yes. And. Anamigo have since lost the rights. When I say lost, they, yeah. the rights expired. So nobody actually owns the international publication rights of Urasayatsara, the anime. They're apparently very complicated rights because of, uh, you know, you, you need to get permission from several different sources to be able to pick that up as a license. Yeah. And I'm guessing at some point in the future, someone will. I reckon there's going to be a, um, like a crunchy roll or Funimation type place that will, Start doing retro anime, and that's probably one of the first things they'll pick up and uh, and start streaming. But as for an actual physical release, no, I don't know. That one might be you know, be a bit I wouldn't
0: be surprised if return to being legally accessible uh, in anime form would be on a streaming service. And Crunchyroll, yeah. you know, I know there are a lot of fans on the Crunchyroll staff of Urasiastra, so I wouldn't be surprised if like if they had the opportunity, they'd go for putting the series on there. But I guess nothing definite for now, but I, I would like to see a nice Blu-ray re-release of the series. I think Discotech is probably the only licensor that would take a chance on your Seatstra just because they're doing a long series and Lupin, they do other kind of series that are classics from that era uh like Kim Orange Road they're doing so
1: i think Oh yes i noticed yeah. that actually that's another classic 80s anime as well i'm kind of halfway through that at the moment myself Um so the last question on twitter here um by Nasu is why is Lum beauty incarnate <laughs> Well i think
0: she was designed to be a dream girl Takashi designed her after you know Agnes Lum a famous model and I mean, like, in terms of personality, I think Lum just lives life to the fullest. And, like, just the energy in which she goes about her day and everything she does, I think is very inspiring and just admirable. So, like, as a character, I think Lum, just the way that she lives life so fiercely is truly beautiful.
1: I think so as well. I think that it's not just the fact that she's, like, a group, you know, she's not even greenhead in the... In the manga, she actually has kind of multicoloured hair, mm-hmm. but you know, like a like a bikini-clad thin young princess. You know, they can be a dime a dozen in anime, but it's a. I think it's actually her purity of character and the way that she uh, lives life and the way that she even emotes is mm-hmm. what really makes her such a classic character. So, do you have any Reddit questions for us?
0: We have quite a few. We'll start off with a question by Flippity the man who asks why does Lum see an Ataru? He has a theory but he's asking us the question. So I think we mentioned this earlier in that Lum sees what kind of person Ataru really is. That he can be this really kind person and she enjoys being around him because he's very outgoing He's a lot of fun. He's always getting into interesting hijinks and trouble. And life is never boring around Ataru. And I think that's why Lum
1: loves him. I think that's... You've hit the nail on the head there. It's all of those things. And when you you meet Lum's ex fiancee as I said before, he's very boring. Like, he's he's very good-looking and everything. But he just has nothing to say in either language. Whereas Ataru, who might not be as good-looking is getting up to all sorts of wacky hijinks. And I think that's what Lum loves because she loves living life and you get the kind of the excitement and the and the thrill of just like being around Ataru as all these wacky misadventures kind of just kind of occur around him.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because Lum coming to Tomobiki Cho is like what causes so many of these shenanigans and crazy people to like, Come to that city and like make such a cacophony of Ataru's life. But really, I think it's Ataru and Lum together that make all this saniness happen. Like, I think they bring out the best in each other and they make each other's lives more interesting.
1: Definitely. Alright, next question.
0: Flippity Man also asked Does having to take care of ten make Lum like a single mother? I don't no, I think so, because I Ataru's parents, uh, take care of Ten a lot, especially Ataru's mother. Yeah. Usually when Lum and Ataru are at school, Ten is just lounging at home, hanging out with Ataru's mom. And so, I think, like, I guess you could think of it as an extended family kind of situation, where, like, you know, uh, Ten is just hanging out with his family, which includes Lum and Ataru and Ataru's parents. But I would say that Lum is more like it ten's sister uh ataru is more like an obnoxious older brother but like ataru's mom and ataru's father are like an aunt and uncle that he's hanging out with i don't think anything that really replaces ten's actual mother
1: no and and that's not so uncommon in japan like several generations and and you know several different branches of the family tree as it were do often like live in one house and that was That was a lot more true back in the 70s and 80s and before that in Japan when uh, there was a bit more space where people could live. But I don't think she's like a single mother. Ten kind of can take care of himself.
0: Yeah. He's quite capable for such a young kid. He has his own spaceship, so he can travel around anywhere he wants to. I love that little spaceship, that little dark potty
1: spaceship. It's very, very (laughs) cute.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Tani's a real go-getter. But, yeah, the next question comes from kingryoka 24 who asks, what is the best episode or multiple to show a newcomer aside from the pilot?
1: Oh, ooh. You know, in terms of the anime, I reckon the best episode to show someone new is actually that episode where um, the Lum Stormtroopers try and set up Ataru with an imaginary woman.
2: Yeah, episode one kind ten, hitter powder
1: Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's the one, and where they they basically, and it's a bit different in the manga again. Mm-hmm. Lum gets wind of this situation and just wants to, and everyone wants to see Ataru utterly humiliated because he's been such a like being such a prick. But at one stage, Lum just, uh, you know, when all of this is going on and there's all of this drama, she just, she just starts to feel sorry for Ataru. And there's a moment where she just goes, I really do love him. And she goes and saves him. And I think that's good because it shows you everything you need to know about Ataru, about Lum, about their relationship and about the rest of the characters in the early, in the early anime as well. And all of their relationships.
0: That's one of the first really heartfelt episodes. And there's some beautiful art direction in that.
1: There really is, especially at the end when they, they hold hands for the, which I think is the first time. It's it's interesting because in the manga, Ataru the context
0: is completely different in the manga.
1: It is it is it is very different, but it still ends the same way. But in the early manga, Lum kisses Ataru all the time, like it's she's all over him. And you know, and she's always insinuating that they've had um sexual relations the night before and she's pregnant and all that kind of stuff. And that really tones down after the first kind of lot of um a lot of chapters.
0: What makes it different from in the early chapters to when there's a tension of them kissing in later chapters is that in the early chapters, like Ataru isn't interested in Lum. So like these advances nothing to him. But when yeah. Lum when he starts falling in love with Lom, and one becomes important to him, then it means something. And then that's where that like tension is of like, does he want to give in and admit that he has these feelings or not? And so, And if he does, that means see. he
1: has to give up his playboy ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Next question. Oh, sorry. No, 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 oh. <laughs> not next question. What, what was your, what, what's your go-to episode?
0: Well, it's funny because a couple of years ago on the Anime animation revelation forums, I actually recommended 10 episodes that I thought would be great places for uh, people to kind of, you know, try and get a sample of like the range of what the anime in particular had to offer in terms of the kind of stories the Oscar could tell. So Pitter Patter Christmas Eve was one of them. I also had the, the Great Space Matchmaking Operation, where like Lum is whisked back to her home planet uh, under a scheme by her father to get her married to someone else because he doesn't think that Ataru is uh, a good fiance for him and then Otaro catches wind of this and then goes to crash the matchmaking making party
1: and this is a great episode as well because it usually Urusei atsara early episodes are split into two like there's like a, a part one and a part two which are usually unrelated stories but this one was actually one of the first ones that was just a whole story like a whole 23 minute episode unto itself
0: and it would continue to be that way for the rest of the run of the series from this episode onwards, too.
1: Hmm. And it has a great song in the middle as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And I also recommended uh, After You've Gone, as we mentioned before, the episode where Ataru thinks slum has left him and just, like, really has to grapple with that seriously for the first time. I chose a few of the anime original episodes that I really love for how experimental they are, like, And Then There Were None, the parody of, uh, and then there were Non like book. So I thought that was a great story. Uh, Parallel World, Where's Darring? The first episode of the Kazuo Yamazaki era of the anime, where, you know, Lum is like slipping into different parallel worlds, where she's not Atari's fiance and stuff. The episode where Ron makes Ayuki upset, and uh, she tries to avoid being like punished by her, confronted by her, is a great one.
1: I do love that one. It's, it's interesting to know that there are a lot of anime episodes which have nothing to do with the original run of Takahashi's manga because they were being produced quicker than the manga yes. was coming out. And there is 195 of these episodes, so some of them are going to be fully original that Takahashi had very little to do with. I think all she had really had to do was just sign off on stories.
0: Basically, though it's interestingly enough, not as many of them are anime original. As you might think. I did an anime-manga comparison chart a long time ago. Kind of looking at what episodes correspond to what chapters. And I found that like only about 20 or so episodes of the anime were anime-original. Which, when you compare to Ron Half, or like half of that series was anime-original, it's actually quite surprising that they actually were able to take most of the chapters and flesh them out into full-length uh, 22-minute stories. Uh, without having to invent
1: completely original songs. Ursa Yatsura did it a lot better than Ranma Half, because I think by the end of Ranma Half's anime, it it kind of fell over a little bit, because Takashi they had nothing to draw from, and uh, a lot of those, I think the last season was actually very, very different in tone.
0: Yeah, the last couple episodes of Ranma Half were definitely focused more on anime original episodes. They still put in some manga storyline episodes, but like definitely as the series went on, they really had to pepper in more anime originals. So it's actually very surprising when you look at Yurze when you go for a long stretch before you have any anime original episodes. One of the first anime original episodes in Your Asura is like the first half of episode 16, like the first segment of it. But then afterwards, you don't get another one until episode 66.
1: Oh, wow. What, what was the first yeah. half of episode 16?
0: So that's the episode that introduces the first anime-only, like, teacher that they have in your Seatsura before oh, they introduce Onsen Mark, the pervert guy, uh, Kobayashi. Yeah, the guy who's, who is, who's like, not really
1: on Onsen Mark. Mark, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, like, that, yeah, that first was a teacher weird episode. they had, but then they replace him with Onsen Mark by, like, episode 30-something.
1: Yeah. I do like Onsen Mark. He's, no, he's the Mark's only straight. one who has any semblance of control over that class. I think we'll take one more question and we'll leave the, the rest for next time, since we're coming up on the two-hour mark.
0: Oh, sure thing. I'll just mention that other episodes that I recommended were I Love Darling Sincerity, which is the episode where uh, Taru goes on the date with the ghost girl, knows me, and has this really emotional climax.
1: And that is one of the episodes where you really find out the true character of Ataru.
0: That is so pivotal to, uh, Ataru.
1: And I'm very, very fortunate to have the, uh, the character production sheet of Nozomi as well. I got it from a, um, oh, that's I picked so it good. up like with the, which is basically like, you, you know, how she's, how she was meant to be drawn in the anime. So it's mm-hmm. really, it's really, really cool to have that. And, uh, and that was such a, Great. And Ataru at the end of that Lum says, You're so kind, darling, and and she's and he says, I'm always kind. So from his perspective, he hasn't done anything great or different. It's just how he always thinks of himself, even if he doesn't act that way.
0: He really just is himself. And that's another thing that I think what Lum loves about Ataru is that Ataru always is himself. He never pretends to be something he's not, unlike Mendo, who makes his mm. pretense of being more sophisticated than he really is.
1: That's very but, true.
0: Yeah. And uh, the uh, the final episode that I recommended was OVA-12, Obstacle Course with Me, the one they made for the 50th anniversary of Shonen Sunday. Because to me, I think that's like a great encapsulation of like some of the best comedy in Yurisui Atsura. And it's also great to see it in like with updated character designs and more modern style of animation. And that episode left me wanting for like a, a remake, not necessarily a remake, but like a kind of more Yurisui Atsura anime that they make like that's similar to it.
1: I do love that, and I just love the fact that it's it's a swimming pool and everyone's in there, you know, it's showing a lot of skin and all that, which is such an Urusei Ataru thing to do. But the other thing I love about the episode is it's got Kosuke in it, and Kosuke yeah. wasn't really in the anime much, but in the manga they kind of got rid of the Lum Stormtrooper characters like the like Perm and Megane and the rest of them Chibi, mm. and they kind of stuck with Kosuke, who's a better fit for Ataru as a friend. Because yeah. although, you know, he kind of has a bit of a crush on Lum, he's an independent character who's not obsessed with Lum and has his own girlfriend in life. And he goes on and creates trouble with Ataru as well. They're kind of on the same level in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. Whereas Lum's stormtroopers are utter foils for Ataru. They're obsessed with Lum and they're not really Ataru's <laughs> friends. They're, oh, they are no, they really resent really Ataru <laughs> and they scheme to get rid of him a lot. But yeah, uh, Megan Megane is a character that I would love to explore further later on in this podcast. because uh, he is quite interesting as like this character who took on a life of his own that is not in the original one.
1: He's them. the most developed of the um the Lum Storm Troopers and he also has yeah. a weird obsession with fascism as well, which is a bit creepy. Yeah, which
0: I think really reflects uh, his Pretty much his creator, Mamoru Oshii. Like, <laughs> like uh, the version of him that appears in the manga is not at all similar to what Oshii turned that character into.
1: Yeah, which is good because it is good to have differences between the the anime. And that's uh, and that's why Takahashi stopped drawing those characters is because they became more of a part of the anime. And she kind of went, oh, she, they've developed those characters and I don't really want to use them anymore because they're no longer kind of... My characters—they've been fleshed out by something else, which I thought was really nice as well.
0: Though I think she also stopped drawing them pretty early on in the series before the anime started, too.
1: I think so, but she just never brought them back, and apparently that was one of the reasons. But actually, mm-hmm. I, I found out that Kosuke is in the first manga, like he's actually at Ataru's bedside uh, when he's recovering from the from the game of tag, which I think mm. is pretty cool as well. I just—I just like Kosuke. I just think he's a great character.
0: <laughs> I do too. And actually, we do. Only have one more question to answer. Oh, so, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and the final question comes from Plastic Cabbage, who asks What was the deal with takashi giving the characters Spider Man hands or rock on symbols when they fell or got hurt? I notice a lot that whenever Ataru gets shocked, or bludgeoned, or beaten, or knocked out a window, or blown up, he sticks his, out his hands like Spider Man. I never understood why.
1: <laughs> so this is uh this is uh, like a signature move of of Takahashi it's it's kind of a bit in the vibe of looney tunes to show that this character is in pain and something bad is happening but it's still very comical so they're not actually hurt so this actually happens to all of her characters when they're shocked or when they've received a beating or something like that. You'll notice that uh, Runma does it in the fights in Runma Half when he just gets hit by a frying pan by, or a mallet by a carne. He'll make those fingers. But when he's in an actual fight, he won't do that because it's it's to signify that this is serious. And I yeah. think it's like a signature move of Takahashi to say, this is funny and comical and the characters will be fine. Yeah, it does look funny.
0: Oh yeah, it's a way to distinguish between slapstick violence and serious violence. So even in Inuyasha, uh, you'll see this happen during slapstick moments too. And this is really a common trope that uh, Takahashi uses in all her series, really.
1: And it, it is good to have a signature style like that. There's just like this one this one little piece that kind of just is across all of her body of work. It's just this this one little nice symbol that they do when they're getting hurt, which is it's very comedic. And I think it works for for all the situations that it's in.
0: Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's more significance beyond like why the gesture is what it is beyond like just being a short signifier of the difference between slapstick and real violence. But I feel like Takashi might've explained more where it came from in some interview that I read a long time ago. So okay. I'll try and see if I can dig that up, talk about in maybe the next podcast or something.
1: Great. On that note, I think uh, we will leave it to uh, the next podcast. Thank you very, very much for listening to the pilot episode, and it's been it's been fantastic. I think we were originally going to go for an hour, and we've pretty much gone for two hours.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm really happy that we had such an amazing discussion, and I'm really happy that so many people wrote in questions for us to talk about. And, man, there's just so much more that I think both of us have to say on your siata, which is why we're doing this podcast, because this is something that both AC and I have been kind of thinking about doing, like, individually, like, for some time, and then we found out, oh, hey, you have this idea for your siata podcast? Let's collaborate. Let's do it together. And I can't think of a better person to do it with.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Me neither. I've And one thing I should say is that your. Um, you've done a great job at uh, doing a deep dive in some of the original run of the of the the manga chapters, and it's, it was really, really fascinating for me to read and uh, you know I've read those many times, but it was very enlightening even for me. So I reckon you should retweet the first tweet of that at some point and uh, and I'll do the same and get a bit more views for that because that was that was really, really interesting.
0: Thank you, and I definitely should continue that thread. Uh, at some point, especially now that these new Viz editions are coming out. And we can also compare how different translators adapted each of these jokes too. Like, rereading Ursiasta, this new omnibus edition, like, just gave me so many interesting ideas. Like, rereading it again, I found, like, more things that I would want to put in that tread that I didn't in the first time. So, yeah, I definitely think I'll start that back up again.
1: I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Right, on that note, thank you very, very much uh, for listening. And uh, I reckon this pilot went well, so I think you should uh, listen out for the next one.
0: That's right. But where can the good people find you, AC?
1: I am uh, at prodtally on Twitter. I think that's the main place that you'll find me milling around. I do the Daily Lum, so it's just a hashtag Daily Lum. I put up, I try and put up something every day Lum related. I have a quite extensive collection uh, which I'll get into in a future episode and just uh, just give me a follow and as this podcast goes forward a bit I'll probably try and come out of my shell and actually go on other social media like Reddit and the like as well mm-hmm. and where can we find you? oh you can
0: follow me on Twitter at Ramayasha and you can read my I all, manga reviews
1: and movie reviews on all com. and you also have a podcast don't you? I do a
0: podcast. You can also listen to Manga Mavericks, which is the podcast I do with my co-host Colton. We discuss manga news. We do reviews and retrospectives on manga series that we really love. It's a great podcast. It's on pretty much any podcast listening platform of your choice. We are on YouTube. We've got a Discord we're on twitter at manga underscore mavericks hit us up and uh, listen to our stuff we've got a lot of episodes we've got a lot of exciting podcasts coming in the future
1: excellent Uh, i also do my own podcast it is um game life balance australia it uh, actually has nothing to do with uh with manga or anime but uh we talk about a lot about just our lives and uh retro video games for the most part i also talk a lot about uh, my experiences in japan on that one as well so if you're a fan of that sort of stuff uh, hit us up Mm -hmm.
0: and as for this podcast i think that uh, we'll be working out like where you'll be able to find it we should have an Apple Podcast account up for it soon. We'll probably set up a YouTube channel, but this is the first inaugural episode of the Lum Squad Podcast. You can probably follow us on social media pretty soon, too. This is all getting started up right now, so there's a lot of stuff that we'll be planning out and getting started, but I'm excited to see where
1: we'll be going. Me too. I'm really excited about this, and thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.
0: Bye, chat!